Well, as we begin this uh, little passage, we've got a really helpful question that heads it up. I wonder if you spotted it, obviously, just there at the, be- at the beginning. Uh, if you've got a red Bible close to you, it will really help to have it open. Um, it will really help both of us uh, as we go through. Um, there's the question at the beginning. Have a look down at verse 1. Did God reject his people? And Paul's answer and the thrust of the passage for us is front and centre. Right at the beginning, it really helps us out. So this afternoon, if you go away with just one thing, will it be the words of verse 1? Does God reject his people by no means? Now, we could just leave it there. Um, But it would be quite an abrupt sermon, and uh, we can uh, delve into the following verses, which hopefully will be really helpful and beneficial for us. Um, Paul digs in, and he gives some context, and he gives some examples which really help us. They drive it home for us, what he's saying. God does not reject his people, and we're going to see that in three cases as we go through our passage this afternoon. There's Israel, there's us, and there's others. Does God reject his people? Well, there's Israel, there's us, and then there's others. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, let's go there first. Here's the context for the discussion that we see here in these verses. There's specific reference to the people of Israel. And that's because it's been bubbling along under the surface for the previous few chapters. There's been a bit of a question mark. There are clearly people at the time that come from a Jewish heritage, the people of Israel, that are not responding to the good news about Jesus. They're not responding positively anyway. So what's actually going on here? The people of Israel throughout the Old Testament had always been marked out as God's chosen people. But now, Jesus, the fulfilment of God's Old Testament promises, has come. He's arrived. And there are some Jews who don't recognise him as the Messiah. So what's going on? What's God doing? What's happened? Well, here's what it said back in Romans 9. Maybe you just flick back if you've got your red Bible open. Romans 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children... But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. You see, through the Old Testament, God had made a covenant with his people to Abraham and his offspring, to the nation of Israel. But what Paul's saying is that being an offspring of Abraham or a part of the nation of Israel, that's not the point. It's actually all about being a child of the promise. It's all about being a recipient of God's saving initiative. And actually now as we come to the new covenant, the new way in which God relates to his people through Jesus, that's 
not changed. The new covenant relies no more or no less on God's saving initiative. So here you've got Paul's three examples. Well, actually, it's an example. It's an example with a bit of explanation and then another example. So first, Paul, he himself is an example. Do you see that in verse 1? Have a look down. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Do you see what he's saying? He is a Jew. He has turned to trust in the Lord Jesus. His second example, though, is probably more prominent, is more important in that it it gives more of an explanation. Like Paul and the present-day Jews, it's an example, but it explains further. Here's the second, the people of Elijah's time. Just have a look down. Let's read again from verse 2. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See, this little exchange between God and Elijah is found in 1 Kings 19, if you want to go and have a look and read later. Basically, Elijah has walked for 40 days and 40 nights to find a place called Mount Horeb. This is the mountain of the Lord. He's gone there because he thinks he's the only one left to be saved. This is what it says in 1 Kings. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. So God tells him to stand on the mountainside in the presence of the Lord. And then God asks him directly, What are you doing here, Elijah? And this is his reply. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And this is where God replies. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Do you see what's going on? I hope I stressed it. Elijah, he's wondering if he himself is the only one in the whole of Israel who's remained faithful to the Lord. But God, in reply to Elijah, says, no, I'm keeping a remnant. God has kept a people for himself. So why does Paul use this example here? Actually, the original translation of 1 Kings 19 is quite helpful because it highlights it maybe more obviously. It says, God caused to remain 7,000 in Israel. God caused to remain. Do you see Paul 
is reiterating what he's been saying for the previous couple of chapters. That this is God's sovereign choice. That is what defines the idea of grace on a chosen people. Did God reject the people? No. He saw to it. He kept a people for himself. Because God never discards those on whom he has set his love. God loves his people first, not because of anything about them. And so third, Paul returns to the example of the present day Jews. Have a look down at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, Paul sees this parallel between the remnant today and in 1 Kings 19. God has not rejected his people. We saw clearly last week, didn't we? If you were here, God is sovereign in his salvation choice. And that remains consistent from the time of Abraham, where he chose a people for himself, to the time where Paul writes, where he chose a people for himself. He doesn't turn a people away from him, because it was never about what they could do in the first place. God didn't reject the true Israel of the Old Testament. God doesn't reject the true Israel listening to Paul. God doesn't reject his people. Well, secondly, what about us? What does that mean for us? Well, grace is grace. Have a look at verse 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Do you see this tells us something about God's character and the way in which he saves his people? If God's choice is based upon what we do, then it is no longer grace. If we contribute anything... To God's rescue, it's no longer grace. If we provide the decisive action, it is no longer grace. If it depended on our saving initiative, in what way is that God's grace? If it was, God would be a responder. We would determine the action. And grace would no longer be grace, verse 6. Instead, grace is dependent on God's decisive action. Grace is dependent on God's saving initiative. And so logically, if this is the case, how and why would he reject the people he has chosen? No, there's nothing you can do for God to withdraw his grace from you. There's nothing you can do that will reject you. Because it was never based on you. It was never based on what you could achieve. It was never based on what you brought to the table if you trust in Jesus. Look, maybe you come this afternoon and you 
You would say you trust in Jesus, but you feel fragile in your faith. Just look at verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, Elijah says. And they're trying to kill me. Elijah has absolutely written off the rest of Israel here. And yet, God, in his decisive action, in his saving initiative, set his love on a rebellious people that he will not let go. You see, for us, the first thing it must mean is that for us, the way in... If grace is grace, we must come humbly. If you trust in Jesus, you are saved by grace. Be humble. Actually, you cannot be anything else. We were dead. We were blind, rebellious. And so inevitably... When we speak in these terms, the question that comes up is, is it fair? And no doubt that would have been a question at some point in the last few weeks. In our time in Romans, the answer must come from the starting point of humility. No, 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 it's not fair. I do not deserve it. I don't understand it. I can't get my head around it. Because God is God, and I am not. I was saved by grace. Wouldn't it be an amazing place to be if we lived truly, consistently in that humility? God is God, we are not. I am a creature of his, I can't even obey the simplest of his commands. I deserve nothing. I don't deserve to look down at my nose on anyone. I don't deserve to expect anyone's fair treatment. I can't walk into the Sunday gathering with any sense of entitlement over others. I can't walk in with any kind of pride in what I've done or what I'm like. I couldn't have any kind of judgment on what others have done. If if I truly get that grace is grace I just can't imagine if we at town church truly grasp the richness of God's grace in all we did we operated in that humility if grace is grace we must come humbly if grace is grace then it must be the way on because remember the words of 1 Kings 19 It is only grace that keeps us for himself. It's only grace. And so when we get that, when we grasp it, when we get that ultimate security, surely that gives us an unbelievable confidence. It's not dependent on anything I've done. It's on his saving initiative. You know, you see that, You see a glimpse of that kind of behaviour as you see someone in their sweet spot doing just what they're good at doing. I I had a friend at school who went to, he left school in sixth form to be a car salesman. 
And it was just perfect for him. He was brilliant in every way. And after a few years, once he'd got his feet under the table, he'd got real respect from his boss, he was working really well. He had the complete backing of his manager. He had nothing to prove. He was secure in his identity. He was happy doing it. He loved it. He went in every day with a bounce. Just once or twice, I saw him on the forecourt. It's just unbelievable. Because he was able to do it with such confidence and freedom. Even there as I stood watching, even there as other people watched on, he could do it. He could afford to do things that others might be nervous to do. He could take calculated risks where others would be crippled by the fear of uncertainty. You know when you have to, I don't know if you ever do this, have to make a cold call to someone that you don't know. If you ever do it with someone else in the room, there's that kind of feeling of, oh, are they listening to my conversation? Every now and again, I make those kind of phone calls and I always just duck out because there's just that kind of, a slight insecurity there, it must be. I don't want them to hear how, that, how I'm talking. You know, if you ever feel like that, you know, it just shows that, that what bubbles under. But no, he, as I watched him at his work, he was just so secure in the way that he operated. So secure that he was able to be free and take risks. He was in a sweet spot. He was safe. You know, if we really get that grace is grace, that being transformed by the good news, God keeps us for himself, that's the most safe and secure place to be. Surely, surely we, can, we can take a few gospel risks. We've got nothing to prove. We've got nothing to worry about. We will continue to be more like the Lord Jesus. The outcome is secure and when you're safe, you can take those risks. Could I give away just that bit more money for the sake of the gospel? Could I be more bold in speaking to the people I really care about for the sake of the gospel? Could I be more reckless in the the way I give things away to our church family? Could I take a few more risks? Because if, if I know grace is grace, God will keep me for himself. I'm safe, I'm secure, and I'm excited to take those risks. God does not reject his people. There's Israel, there's us, and now there's others. God takes for himself whoever he pleases. Look, the obvious question as we read down this passage is what about others? What about the others? And look at verse 7. We're meant to look first specifically at Israel. Verse 7, read with me. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Look, there's kind of two questions here as we read it. There's the technical question of what happens to the Jews, and there's the philosophical question of of what is God doing? First, the technical question. 
Were there some Jews desperately trying to be saved by God and not able to because there was a, there was a change in the mechanism by which someone would be saved? There's a new covenant. Is that fair? What's going on? Or, or maybe more simply, there's old covenant people. And when the new covenant comes, does God just reject his people? Well, the answer is no, because the means by which someone is saved has remained the same. Previously, someone was saved by the mechanism of the old covenant before Jesus. Since Jesus came, someone is saved by the mechanism of the new covenant. But consistent throughout is that someone is saved by a God of Grace, who takes for himself whoever he pleases, who shows mercy and grace on a people who don't deserve it, by the work of Jesus on the cross. There's no technical exclusion. God hasn't made a mistake or overlooked people. The second part is maybe a more philosophical question. Are there some people who are desperately trying to be saved by God and not able to? both then and so now. And we've seen the answer time and time again in Romans. There is no one who seeks God. And the hardening that verse 7 speaks of is what we read about in Romans 1. And so God gave them over in the sinful desires. That's what verse 8 to 10 describes. It's eyes that can't see, it's ears that can't hear. They've been given over, their hearts are hardened like Pharaoh that we saw last week. But do you know what? We couldn't possibly say who God will take for himself. It's not because of anything, the remnant, the the left behind, the chosen, that explains why they're chosen for salvation. The others, that maybe you call them the non-chosen, those who are hardened here, they're not passed over because they're any worse, and the chosen are not chosen because they're any better. Otherwise, verse 6, grace would not be grace. The answer in verse 7 is actually really simple to read. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And of course that's not so easy to understand, to to accept. You know, we could talk and talk and talk about this answer that Paul gives, but the answer in the end will always be, God takes for himself whoever he pleases. And we don't know. And we don't understand. And that's why it's vital if you have come to trust in Jesus that we come humbly before a God that is not like us. Because we are not God. And look, it's worth saying, as we walk through this afternoon, it might be that you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Or as we look at this and you you think, actually I'm not sure. I'm worried or nervous when it gets this black and white. Am I us? Or am I others as we've talked this, this afternoon? Well, 
we must know there is no reason to say God might not choose me. There is no reason for us to say God might not choose me. We each have personal responsibility to respond to the truth about Jesus. Just in the previous chapter, Paul makes that clear as he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you're, you're not sure. Can I encourage you, please, to respond to this good news of the Lord Jesus today. And if you are a Christian, there is no reason to say God might not choose them. There must be a call for us as we read this passage, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, not to be like Elijah. Uh, I'm the only one in the whole place. There will be on grace. I'm the only one in my street. I'm the only one in my group of friends. I'm the only one of my colleagues. N- no. Instead, we have the huge privilege that Romans 10 described last week. Maybe just flip back there from verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Here is the immense privilege for us at Town Church. There are people in our town that will hear, believe, and call on the name of Jesus. Because people just like you go and say something of him. Will you? Will you pray earnestly for people you care about who don't yet know Jesus? Will you take risks? Scatter recklessly with your time? Because God takes for himself whoever he pleases. And amazingly, he chooses us to be part of that mission. And when he does, he doesn't reject his people. The only way in is by grace. The only way on is by grace. He will keep a people for himself. If you trust in Jesus today, you can have the most brilliant confidence. It's not based on our initiative. It's not dependent on how good we are. And so we can trust in a faithful God. Because as we'll sing in a minute, He will hold me fast. Let me pray. Father, we confess.